Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This week we're Review 2-ing Pop. Any song can be improved with a boomcher. Bassline and the synthesizers. You can leave Adam Clayton alone. Little Wham Bam. Little Baby. But that makes no sense. Of course it does. God is everywhere and nowhere on this album. London, New York, Paris, Wigan. Everybody talk about pop music. So Tyler, can you tell us a little bit about what's been happening to the band since Europa? Okay, well first off... Apologies, this may take a little longer to get through than usual. This is such a hard period in U2's career to talk about. A lot going on. Um, A lot going on, and also a lot not going on. They seem to have taken a whole year off after Zoo TV. Mm. Okay, so this is the strangest transitional period to cover in U2's whole career. What is pop to Zoo Roper? What happened in the four years between the two albums? U2 seemed adamant about being in the conscious of the music scene. The band finished Zoo TV tour in December 1993 and largely took off the whole of 1994. In 1995, uh, the U2 fan club magazine Propaganda releases Melon, a compilation of nine remixes which would start a trend of U2 revisiting, remastering and ultimately remixing tracks. One such example of this would be Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, which ended up being the soundtrack for the Batman Forever movie in 1995. Also during this time, the band wrote the GoldenEye soundtrack for the 007 movie. In November, U2 teamed with Luciano Pavarotti, Brian Eno, Japanese singer Holly and DJ Howie B to form supergroup Passengers, releasing one album called uh, Original Soundtracks 1. One, yes, which we will review to at some point. But that's story- When are we doing that one? Uh, I don't know. It's a story for That's another That's a very day. niche podcast for like some ultimate diehard U2 fans. Listens may not be high for that episode. I'm not predicting great numbers for that. <laughs> but it's a side pro- uh, podcast. It's not our main well, yeah, thing. Uh, yeah. you know? Okay, fair enough. But anyway, uh, it's, it's January 1996 when the band go into the studio. That's a really long time after the Zoo TV tour, not, not to mention Zoo TV. Mm. Um, and then it's... Uh, it's March 1997 when Pop is released. It's quite a, a spread out. That's half the 90s all, all gone on basically messing around with Pavarotti and trying to record an album which they all say is unfinished. But something else happened in the 90s, um, which we haven't really covered. And it's really important to cover it now, um, or, or not at all really. In the UK at this time, there was this sen- uh, sensation, this movement called Britpop. It was a musical movement in the mid-90s which emphasised Britishness. Um, it produced quite a lot of bright pop acts, um, and it was a reaction to the US-led grunge music. Um, the UK the UK had the, a shoegazing music scene up until Britpop, um, and it gave birth to such acts as Oasis, Blur, Suede, Pulp, I think they're the pretty much the top four. I think they're the main ones. I mean, obviously, the people will quibble about which ones to include, but they certainly the main ones, particularly, I would say, Blur and Oasis. Yeah, absolutely. So this all happened pretty much while you 2 are either taking the, the mick out of themselves and um, being quite self... What's the word I'm looking for? Referential? Yeah, self-referential. Um, 
and and just making a gimmick of themselves really um but in the meantime these young bands have come up hungry bands have come up uh, and entered the music scene and really changed what the music scene is like Britpop was so big that Tony Blur went, uh, incorporated Britpop into his cool Britannia phase which he wanted his new labor to, and government to be you know a part of mm. so it, it was a huge uh, movement it, it's strange that at this time politics have uh, has taken on music whereas you too have always tried to take on politics but they miss mm. this pretty much the whole phase so when when they're writing pop everything's changed this yeah. isn't the same uk or the same world as the zoo tv era or the acton baby era no. this, this it it does it does seem a very new world for them i'd also add as well as Britpop um over in the uk you mentioned grunge that's obviously enormous in um in the us but you know i guess it's a global thing but i'd also want to add to that electronic dance music and trip hop and hip hop and lots of other things which do bleed into this album as influences how much of an influence is another question but I'll let you carry on with the uh, the history. Well, um, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty much done. I do have a quote from Larry, but I think that the purpose of this is where do you two fit in in this new musical era of the mid to late 1990s? Uh, the quote here from Larry is: "We were very conscious of wanting to be on the radio. We wanted to compete with the boy bands and all that. And why not? Unless you're making music that's vital and that people can hear, we're wasting our time." Yeah. I think Larry's the only one out of the band who could compete with, you know, boy band members, considering his look. I mean, he looked great at this time, I would say. Well, you two do refer to themselves as uh, an Irish boy band, don't they? You can't imagine seeing, you know, the scene. There is a young, you know, kind of teen who's really into the boy bands, and then she gazes up at her poster of Adam Clayton beaming down like a benevolent uncle. You know the boy band bit where they're all sat on stools, not unlike what we're sat on right now, Yeah. where they all suddenly stand up. Yeah. Uh, when there's a key change. Yeah. I'd love to see you two do that in a video or something. It, the Ordinary Love um, performance was a little bit like that. A little bit. Oh, on the Jimmy Fallon show? Uh, I, I meant on the Oscars, but it was um, them all sort of walking towards... I think I've always them. seen that once. That, that was a, quite a rough performance. Mm. So I've got a quote from Bono here where he's talking about... He's trying to sum up the album, Pop, and how it fits into um, this musical scene we've been discussing. Bono said that pop is the sound of you two trying to make an ode to club culture without, and I'll stress that word without, using the tools of dance music, which were loops, drum machines, and pro tools. So Bono is saying here, and I think it's an interesting way to approach this album because I think most people will will approach it by saying, oh, this is you two's dance music record. At the time, there were a lot of rumours going around saying this is you two's trip hop record. I think they wish people were saying that. But I think people would, you know, people who have a little bit of understanding about the band's past, they would see this and see a track like Mofo or any other ones and, and say, this is where they're using the dance music. And I think it's interesting that they're trying to make dance music, but again, with with guitars and with without just doing the complete route of sampling, you know, that kind of thing. There are songs here on this album, basically, rather than it just being all produced in a studio. That makes sense. Yeah, but do you think there's a sense that that dance music had kind of evolved by the time this record actually came out? Yeah, uh, it had moved along a long way away from it, what where it was 
in you know the early 90s with the scene that we were describing the kind of manchester manchester scene we were describing on acton baby well you know this is 1997 and daft punk were already a pretty big established act they've been around for two three years something like that so that's popular dance music does the u2 album pop stand up to this yeah that is an interesting question um so when you two talk about this or are interviewed about this album, they're often very, very critical of pop. And uh, Paul McGuinness said that this is a case of too many cooks spoiling the broth. There were just too many people involved in the whole production of the album. And we obviously will address Pop Mart, but probably not go into it too much because that's really for another another day and another... It's hard to ignore Pop Mart, particularly around this time. But we, this is pretty much a commentary on the album, but... Just to follow up on your point about the production of this, it's a it's a new production team. Yeah. Uh, there's no Eno. There's no Steve Lillywhite. There's there is no, there is Flood. Yeah. There's no Danny Lenoir. There's Flood, Howie B. Yeah. And on one song, I think it's just Discotech, uh, we have Steve Osborne. So a completely new team, really. Yeah, and it does sound very different. I know this is obviously grouped with, and rightly so, with. Acton Baby and Zeropa, but it sounds so different. It sounds, in my opinion, a hell of a lot fresher than Zeropa does, purely in its sound quality. I'm not talking about the songs or the choices that are made in terms of instrumentation, just the actual, you know, the texture of it, what it's like to listen on headphones. Do you yeah. would you agree with that? Yeah. Um it does it does sound very different. It is a very different album in every way. Mm. Uh it's difficult to say which stands out more, this or Zeropa. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll come to some kind of conclusion by the end. Um, I think to return to that subject of the band being harsh on this record, whenever it's discussed, it almost seems that the band want to really clearly flag up it wasn't finished, and this is clear from all the remixes and all the time they spent going back into the studio and re-recording different songs, trying to get different cuts. So it's a really odd album in that respect because... It sounds so good to me, and I'm sure there'll be lots of other people who agree it sounds so good. And then that disjoints with what the band actually think about it. Yeah, it does, yeah. Last thing I wanted to say, and we don't usually talk much about the covers. I know there was a whole October debacle, see that previous episode. But this cover, so iconic, it's obviously making the references to, to pop art. And um, I love everything about the you know the booklet and the design. It's so annoying that the actual two is not in white, that it's changed in black. So ha take a little peek at the album cover uh, to um, you at home, and as Tyler is doing now. Have you noticed that before? I have, yeah. yeah. Does it annoy you as much as it annoys me? Um, not really. I mean, I, I designed the covers for the, the podcast, so I've had to replicate the text. Mm. So in ours, the, the, the U2... The REV is yeah. in white, and then the U2 is in black. Well, I hadn't noticed that. Well, you've not seen it. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> That will be why. Yeah. So, but yeah. It's, and I, I've got a theory about this, right? Guess whose face it is, which is an exception is being made for. Well, of course it's Bono. Of course it's Bono. They're in alphabetical order. Oh, right. I'm glad you brought this up. Okay. This is a far more interesting point than your talk I'm going to finish this text. point at some I point. Don't right. Here we go. Right. The Songs of Experience cover, which is supposed... I, I use that loosely. I don't know how official it is. Mm. But it's very interesting. It has uh, the faces 
very much like on pop. Right. All of them under construction. The the faces are kind of made out up of buildings, you know, being built and scaffold mm. and cranes and things like that. It it honestly it looks really really good. It sounds really bad. It it harkens back to pop, which only makes me anticipate songs of experience even more. Well, that is good news. I will agree with that. And also, I mean, I'm very willing to be, and hopefully I'll be proved wrong about how it looks. Back to my point about the U2 image. Do we have to? Just very quickly. Do you think, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear what other people think about this, do you think this is a conscious decision? It's a little, you know, kind of like, um, you know, Paul turned round on uh, Sergeant Pepper's. Do you think there's a story behind this and the band are saying, oh, we, we wanted to, you know, make that change there for a particular reason? Or is it simply that all the rest of that image, there are darker shaded areas, which makes sense, obviously, for the white to stand out upon it? Is it just that they couldn't be bothered taking another picture of Bono or even just flipping that picture a little bit so they could have that, you know, that white spe- that white two there? What do you think? Have you gone to sleep? Uh I don't, I don't think it matters, um, really. You've got, you've got Adam classically stirring off into the distance, which I think on most of the covers that Adam is on, mm. he is stirring off into the distance. It's yeah. kind of like his pose. I think he's sort of musing about, you know, tea, or, you know, just having a nice sit. Edge is looking at me like a disapproving dad. I always thought Edge looks quite, um, quite cool and sort of like he's in a club and he's almost you know raised eyebrow and kind of like hello no Ad, uh, um edge looks like a disapproving dad larry looks like the older brother that has just seen what you've done and he's seen what you've done and is quite um he's, he looks disapproving i think quite no i think larry is in on the joke <laughs> uh what joke and the joke of the album cover having a stupid i don't know I don't, I don't know what, when don't, he should have a white two. i don't know what you can say about bono's face on um on pop but yeah, it's an iconic cover. Yeah, I do like it. It's just it, because I like it so much, it's annoying that that is, uh, is there. The, the um the single covers are really good for this as well, but we don't really we don't do that. Um, all I will mention is Edge's impression of Scream. Uh, he's doing that. Oh yeah, for uh, the last night on, on, on the last night on Earth cover. If you don't if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google that. But I do think it's time that we go track by track. So, this is Review 2. You're here with Tyler and Johnny. Follow us from innocence to experience and spend your last night on Earth with us as we review to the album Pop. Discotech. So we're back with a big intro again. I'm always really happy when I can turn on a U2 album and in the same way as Streets or Zeropa, we've got a big intro that builds up. Some people hate that. I think it's brilliant. And the introduction to this song is particularly interesting because it was a nightmare to record and to re- produce this track. Howie B had discussions with the band and they said they didn't like the way it was sounding. And they said, can you make it sound like a swirl? And Howie B got really annoyed about this and said, what does that mean? A swirl. I mean, it's not much to go on as a producer. It's hardly technical. I get it? that sense though, like that. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, <laughs> I bet that sounds terrible on the mic. Maybe in my head, it sounded amazing. We'll get Howie B in to produce that section. Um, so Howie, love your work. So I think it's important because it shows a dedication. Again, you two are putting so much time and effort into producing the track. It shows that they're really caring about every single little bit of texture on this album. 
they said that it's not finished, but I think it sounds excellent. And every section of this song sounds good. It sounds like this could come out of of the end of Zeropa. You know, like Zeropa's got those uh, the the warning sirens. Hmm. It's it uh, the two for me are quite linked. Like you could you could listen to this as a continuation. Yeah, but so because I, so I think it works. Although they've never actually said that that's that was the purpose, but it it's interesting that that would still work. Yeah, and I think it's nice that um, after such a long time away, it's almost like they're emerging again, and they're emerging with this really fresh, interesting sound. It's not just business as usual. Let's play a guitar, you know that kind of thing. I I I enjoy listening to this song every single time. I never get sick of it, and I think that's because there's so many contrasts throughout this song. You know. The the sound is never the same. What do you think? Um, right. This song is the reason I didn't discover this album a lot sooner. Really? Yeah. I remember being about when I was first getting into you two, and two of our mutual friends, Johnny. Uh, no, not you're Johnny, aren't you? I think so. You're right. Okay. Uh, who are the others then? Doesn't um, matter, does it? We can just you know. Uh, Mark and Kieran. Okay. were in Should I be thrilled with that reference in in Mark's little bedroom at his mum's which is so so tiny like smaller than Harry Potter's cupboard this is not true <laughs> <laughs> it might as well have been uh, for three adolescent boys to be sat there listening to discotech but I re- I had a, a really bad reaction to discotech because I was getting into music and I, I didn't really understand music yet so I was trying to I wanted if they didn't have like guitars and you know bass drums and a traditional setup, then it was rubbish. And I, I hated synthesizers. This band sounds great. This <laughs> guitar and bass drum band. <laughs> so it's just twang, twang. Dum, no, dum. but I, I very much wanted like the the standard setup, and and I felt like kind of like that guy who shouted um, Judas Judas at, at Bob Dylan. That's pretty much the phase I was in. Yeah. Um. So there, there, there I were. I, so there I was with my friends, and they're listening to Disco Tech, and this is a band that I'm really, really getting into. And I'm like, oh no, they're sold out. <laughs> it's ridiculous, you know why? Why are, they, why are they doing music like this? So I only discovered this album about 2006. So it's the last album from you know the time that you could you know from that point then that you yeah could yeah um, yeah chronologically it was the last album left for me to discover mm. and from that point i absolutely loved it i i i'd aged a couple of years and i just i, I got that you know music was more about uh, the sound than how it's you know put together it's about that end product mm. um so from hating this this is one of the u2 songs that gets me really really excited when mm. I, when when i hear it um it's probably my favorite uh, phase of U2 uh, so experimental whether this album's finished or not I think this is a this, this is a really good product yeah um, so I'm, I'm really happy with it I want to know is this uh, song a, a comment on artistry I think it's a comment on a lot of things I mean we probably have said this a hundred times but we tend to like the songs where there is ambiguity and there's depth but also ambiguity so I think this song can be about artistry it can be about music, it can be about drugs, it can be about love, and all of those, you know, stand up to the lyrics. You know, you know you're chewing bubblegum, you yeah. know what it is, but you still want some, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I. It's interesting, because when I was getting into this type of music in, in 2006, it obviously wasn't 
the what was popular at the time was so far removed from uh, discotheque and from pop. Mm. So I remember being sat in maths uh, and MP the the first rubbish little MP3 players were out. They were like tampons. They were just. Do you remember the? I don't remember the specific model you're talking about. <laughs> but um, I'm sat there in maths and you would feed the um, the earphone down mm. your arm so you could sit there with your hand on your ear. You'd say, yeah, yeah, hand on your ear and listen to whatever music. And then if yeah. a teacher came along, you just moved your hand and there was no music. I, so, I never performed this disreputable behaviour. <laughs> so I sat, I sat there listening to uh, discotheque quite happily doing my sums. <laughs> and listening to discotheque and then uh, a very attractive girl came over her name was rebecca and i'll leave it at that okay um and rebecca said to me oh what are you listening to mm. and i thought oh this is great you know i'm listening to discotheque discotheque's great so she's gonna listen to my music think i'm really cool and obviously want to date me she listened to about five seconds of discotheque looked at me and went why are you listening to that shit she just says boom char. <laughs> and it absolutely broke my heart because I, I think I was a little bit in love with that girl. But also, this is someone who you want to impress and she hates one of the bands that you love the most at that point, you know? Yeah, and I, I thought, like, I just thought discotheque and, and pop, by extension, was the coolest thing on the planet at, at, at 15, 16 years old. Mm. It, was, it was just so epically cool and so different from everything else that was out there. I mean, it is funny how you two seem to be so good at being completely out of step with what's actually going on. You know, they, they see, I think because I got into U2 as my favorite band while I was discovering, you know, music and really getting into going through the history of music, they're not a good band basically to actually give you a guide to what is predominantly happening within an era. No, they kind of exist within and of themselves. And they're often either two years behind or a the, decade ahead. They're kind of laminated from <laughs> from what's out there. Mm. There's there's U2 and then there's the rest. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that you know U2 are, are the best band in the world, although they're my favourite band. But there's U2 and the rest. I think I said that on the first podcast. Yeah, I see what you mean there. Um, but yeah, the Boom Chaz. Uh, I love the I Boom Chaz. Why think... were they taken off the the the, I... um, the you know the remix? I don't know. I think any song can be improved with a boom cha. Yeah, I'm sure one would be improved with boom cha. No, but imagine this. I did it my way. Boom cha. Boom cha. Yeah, um, probably not. I don't I know. Say. I reckon Frank could be down with that. Um, so, going back to, to Disco Tech, I think this is one of the few songs that you could actually play in most discotheques or clubs obviously no one calls them discotheques anymore and it would get some people moving on the dance floor i think it would actually work in that way the riff is so infectious the fact that the drums are always bouncing in and bouncing out is so good for that kind of you know the energy the song always has energy i'd say it would join a group of maybe 10 or so u2 songs that just the energy never ever stops. With, you know, streets would be in that group well, as well. Well, this is quite a daring um, change in direction, but they don't seem to be awkward about it whatsoever. They've been a bit awkward about things in the past, uh, specifically when they, they're changing the musical direction. There was none of that. They this was just all out in your face, and I I love that. I, they, they had so much confidence in this album at the time that it's 
It's a little sad that they diminish it so much whenever they talk about it now. Well, I think they went into the process with a lot of a lot of confidence. They had had the time to relax, to soak up lots of other influences. Um, again, those kind of bleed into the record, but don't define it. So this is never, okay, here's you two doing, you know, a prodigy song, or here is you two doing some other kind of song. But I think Larry actually, I mean, the discotheque video kind of bears this out. Larry does not seem sold on dressing up like a cowboy and, you know, well, like the village people and dancing around. Whereas Bono and Edge are really, really into it. I love how uncomfortable, particularly Larry, looks and how half-arsed his uh, dancing is. That's the only word for it, yes. And I, I, I think, obviously, Bono was the one that would have wanted to do that. Mm. Edge probably was a little bit more reluctant, but I think he saw the fun in making the other two do it. Yeah. He, well, Edge has got the most revealing costume as well. I mean, he's got the uh, the biker, you know, with the chaps and he everything. He was probably in the best shape at that point. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Anything else on discotheque? I like the fact that every time I listen to it, there's a new weird texture or detail that I hear. So I've noticed it before, but the cowbell really stood out to me in this, in this one. I know that's not a major feature, but... I've never noticed the cowbell, but like it it speaks about the song. It speaks a lot about the song that you can say that there's a cowbell in there, and I just go, well, yeah, of course there is. Of well, course there's a cowbell in this song. You throw everything at this song. I mean, yeah, yeah it's it's crazy the amount of different um, styles and effects. Um, as much as I love this song, I don't know if it's the best opener. Interesting. I would also, if we were doing an alternate track listing, put this in a different place. However, that might be a good thing to, to dedicate an entire podcast to when we go through all of the albums and chat about track listing. So that, maybe we that, should. That would be a podcast for the Anoraks, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I mean, that's that's fine with me. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm guessing it's only Anoraks <laughs> listening, really. And we welcome Anoraks, you know. Yeah, this is a podcast for Anoraks by Anoraks. Johnny, do you feel loved? I mean, that's a big, a big question to drop on me in the podcast. No, um, no, it's track two. Oh, right. I see. Okay. Uh, I love this song, and I think it's another one of those forgotten classics that doesn't get enough representation. I've got a quote from Edge here, and he's saying that the song is a great thought, but it never became a great song. And I remember reading that and just thinking. No, Edge, you're actually wrong here. And I know I'm usually in Edge's corner, but he is, it's such a great song. It's fully realised, in, in my opinion, and I think one of the reasons why that might be is, like a lot of this album, it takes a lot of effort to replicate this stuff live. There's a lot going on. So I think they had difficulties early on with this, and that's why playing it live, and that's why it was pretty quickly dropped from the, the main set list when they actually took the album on tour. So... Maybe that's why it's a kind of lost classic. What, what are your thoughts? I, I, I love this song too. Um, it, it's one of the most... Oh, okay, the, the whole album sounds like a 90s album. That, that's undeniable. But I can hear this song on the radio. I don't have any um, memories of hearing it on the radio. But this is one of the singles, so it, you know it would have been. This fits in. Was this a single? Yeah. Really? Was it? Have I got that completely wrong? There were a lot of singles off this album, but I don't think this was one of them. Okay, I'm so I'm completely wrong. Right. It wasn't a single, but I wish... I can imagine this being played on, on, on the radio. It's a very... It fits into that 90s canon very, very easily. 
But to go back to the question or not question of do you feel loved? Because I think, of that absent question mark. Yeah, I think absolutely unequivocally the answer to that question will be no. No, like the, the song is, it's revealing uh, the blackening heart of this album. There is what this album looks like in terms of the grey slash silver cover, you know, sparkly, bright colours. Not a yellow. Yeah. Um, very pop arty, Lichtenstein, Warhol, that kind of thing. So you have, um, that's the packaging. But when you delve deeper into this album, mm. uh, it's it's very insecure. It's very, um, I think, desperate at times. Yeah. Um, people kind of on the edge, and uh, people that's, on the edge. <laughs> yeah. Giving him piggyback. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Um, so many times that you can make a U two pun, and usually I resist its charms, but it got me that time. But back to the serious point of this discussion. Yes. Um, that's what it is. This song is uh, the first instances of the blackening heart of the album. Uh, this, you know, you, you tear, tear away... Um, the foil. Cut, yeah, the foil and the cut. The foil's very good because it's silver. Yeah. Um, and, and what you're left with is quite a pessimistic album, quite a pessimistic track. Uh, I feel like um, it's got almost a, a you know you know the saying tears of a clown yeah it's, it, you get that feeling from from this song um, you know is love emotional or is it robotic are we you know is it just a cultural expectation yeah are we programmed to mm. to go through this or is it a need within us um, and that's I I just love the thought of this song I love the ideas within it, um, and I like that they're exploring it on track two. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, I firstly, I agree with so much of what you're saying there, and I think track two, particularly coming after Discotect, you two do this kind of bait-and-switch move all the way through the album, which is that, look at how shiny this is, look how crazy it, it this is. It works here. It yeah. doesn't work in other instances, but it does work here. Okay, it'll be good to hear later on what those bits are as well. But you approach this album, and as you say... It has a certain colour to it and a certain feel to it. And all the music seems quite glitzy. So right at the start, you know, you've got the guitar. I love that guitar, but we won't talk about that too much. And then obviously you have all the, the blips and the bleeps and all the programming and loops that come over that. And you could say, oh, you two are just, you know, stealing all the latest techniques and sticking it on here. And there's not really any depth and this is kind of shallow. But yeah, the depth is right there. Well, um, there was um, a lot of the criticism about this album were that you two were trying to fit in, you know, with by by doing remixes and more dancey tracks. They were trying to sell records by fitting into a genre. Mm. Um, but I think it's more the case that remixes just they became bigger and bigger in the nineties. I mean, there were there were earlier remixes in the seventies and the eighties, but no were you know, you had clubs dedicated to them. And the technology got better. Yeah, rave culture, you know, all that that's pretty much the 90s summed up for me. So it's more that that was important and you two wanted to try that. Less, I don't think they did this just to sell records. No. If I, they did, it didn't work. <laughs> and the thing is, well, 
They did still sell. I mean, oh, they, they, obviously, this they still sold huge really, amounts comparative it, to today. Yeah, but in terms of this is this is a really modest earner for for uh, you two comparative to say a Joshua Tree or an Acton Baby or or even a Rattle and Hum. Yeah, this is say. this is regarded as the forgotten U two album mm. more so than Zeropa. Yeah, I'd say in some circles. Obviously, there's it's, it's there's controversy over that within you know kind of and disagreement as as there would be in any fan community. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I think is really interesting um, that you brought up though is this kind of weariness or dark side that exists all the way through this album. So I'm not sure if it was on this album again where we get that narrative being spun by Bono where he's saying, you know we have a night out and then the hangover, you know, the party and then the day after all the effects of it. Because, yeah, right from track two, we do have big questions being asked. Do you feel loved? And it goes right to the core of that. I've heard it said about Actung and about Pop that it's a, a night out and a hangover. That's the story being told. I think this really... Pop, particularly, that works. Uh, I think maybe that idea was there for Actung, but it doesn't pay off. And some really strong songs on Actung as well, so it doesn't need that overarching thing. Hmm. Um, you can um, you can see past that. Um, but because pop is viewed the way it is, then a story like that does help you have an interest. Like, oh, oh okay, how does this story play out? Hmm. It's kind of like a, a little blurb. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I understand that. But... Yeah, it's a great track, but uh, just to listen to on the surface, it's a great track. And then once you start to delve deeper, and you, you discover all this darkness and this depth, this album starts to be uh, become something else. And on the next track, maybe it's a climax, or maybe it's just a you know further into those troughs and, and, and valleys. But let's go to Mofo and let's find out. Okay, so here we go with Mofo. Um, possibly the most, uh, in terms of genre, the most dance track you two have ever written. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I don't know if there is any track that is, that, that go. maybe there are tracks that are more successful in being a dance track, but this is, at its heart, probably the danciest track they have. Which is just on record, without remixes, you know, in this form, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is where they really go all out with the particular sound that they were going for, where the influences are shown on the um, on the work clearest, definitely. And this is, I'd say this is one of the hardest songs you two have, have produced as well. I mean, they're not necessarily the hardest band in terms of either rock or dance music, but this is it's pretty hard stuff. Yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty heavy. Um, and by the way, we're not going to talk about pop, but this is my favorite entry to any gig, not just a U two gig. If I was a rock star, I would be putting on my lemon yellow silk uh, boxes mm. gown and shadow boxing my way to a stage through crowds of thousands and thousands of people. I would do that every night of my life and die a very, very happy man. Mm, boxing uh, through the three or four people who've turned up out of uh, sympathy. <laughs> Dancing through the 30 or 40 listeners we get. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't really focus on Popmart too much, but no, I get what you're saying. It's such a good entry. And again, I don't want to talk about this too much, but maybe this would have been the best place to start for the album, just to 
really mess with people's heads in the same way that Zoo TV messes with people's heads. You know, uh, sorry, not Zoo TV, uh, Zoo Station. You know, we come back from Rattling Hum and we get that incredible sound. It would be good, even though Zeropa's not as different the, to hear this. Well, it's kind of like Bono needs all that, all that distraction. You know, and, and to mess with people's heads because he, the, the subject matter is it's about uh, Bono's mum Iris who died when he was fourteen. Um, we've covered this subject before on songs like Tomorrow and we'll co- and I will follow. Um, we didn't mention it on Lemon, but Lemon is apparently written about Iris as well. I think I might have mentioned it really in passing, but I think it's I don't listen to you. It's <laughs> okay. Well, I think this is the most directly that Bono has ever addressed this issue within a song. And it's incredible because, again, on the face of it, this song is you two trying to do a particular sound and people might write it off as fluff or just, oh, you know, that's you two trying a different sound. That word fluff amuses I'd, I'd love to write things off as fluff. I've never heard that expression before. <laughs> but in the centre of this song is the most intimate and the most direct Bono has ever been about this subject. It's like all that casing, though, and all that... I'm trying not to say fluff now. All that padding of the beats and the bass line and the synthesizers and Edge's enormous guitar sound, all of that gets stripped away and there's Bono standing vulnerable. But all of that is protection for Bono. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, this is a song you really have to work at. It'd be very easy to... If if you're not into this type of music, it'd be very easy to write this song off. Which a lot of you 2 fans, presumably, who had signed up for Rattle and Hum, for example, who really liked that direction... It's not my particular favourite direction, but a lot of fans would have liked that. To then, you know, be faced with something like Mofo, yeah. very different, you know. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think we quite clearly both love this song. Um, so if, is there anything we can say without gushing? There are a couple of things I would like to discuss. Um, this is the song which builds, which brings in um, faith and religion, the strongest, you know, at the start of the album. You know, looking forward to fill that God-shaped hole. I even like the kind of... I love we- that line. But it's the weird phrasing yeah. of that line, isn't it? It's almost like a blues line, looking forward to fill. It's not standard grammar, but it sounds really soulful and interesting. So the God-shaped hole is something that we can come back to all the way through this album because when you go looking for it, God is everywhere and nowhere on this album. And I think that's really fascinating. The way he says hole as well, there's a slight hesitation before. It's like he doesn't know what he's going to say. Hmm. Which obviously he does, but the way it just like it's like he's pouring his heart and soul out, and he he's not actually formulated the ideas in his head. Um, yeah, and there's there's kind of a weariness to the way he's saying it as well, and a desperation, which is good. Yeah. The phrasing, there's some really interesting phrasing choices on this. This is where Bono is. Well, it's interesting you said about blues because I've written blues uh, and like progressive jazz so much in my notes about this album. Hmm. Not not so sure it should be called pop. <laughs> in fact, it might be the least pop record I've ever heard in my life. Well, again, that's the old the old bait and switch from you too, isn't it? The yeah. the fact that, I mean, one of the early stories that I think is told about the genesis of this album, and particularly the title, is Bono was talking to um, someone who referred to him as, "Oh, you're a singer in a pop band." In that way, you know, like pop isn't actually a worthwhile medium. Well, yeah, but pop is the surface, isn't it? Like, you know, think the things are popular, but just because they're popular doesn't mean you understand what they're all about. That's where fans come in. Yeah. So go on. We need to discuss something and we need the listeners help on this. Because we've been arguing about this track for a very very long time. A very very long time. Let's take the gloves off. I'm glad I remembered. Right. Um in the chorus. Is it the chorus? 
Uh, no, I think it's in the verses. In the verse, right. Ed- Edge has a lovely little um, harmony. I think it's just, yeah, just a sort of backing. Yeah, a bit of backing vocals. Um, and it sounds like Little Wham Bam, repeated over and over again. No, it doesn't. But you don't mm. think it says Little Wham Bam. No. What I, do you think it is? I think it says Little Baby. Okay. Now, but that makes no sense. Of course it does, Mofo. The song is about yeah, but like, even if Bono's even if Freudian you sing issues. that over the the track, it doesn't fit. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to take a triangle shape and put it into a square hole. Okay, am I am I as bad, or do you think I'm further off the mark than our good friend Vinny, who appeared on the Rattle and Hum episode, who <laughs> believes it's Little Red Men? I, I definitely don't think it's Little Red Men because that makes zero sense. But also, Little Baby doesn't fit. Little White Pram might fit. <laughs> um, I have been on the website, Three Chords and the Truth. Um, it's really good for getting you two lyrics and seeing them as a whole album rather than just you know individual tracks. They say it's been around the back, been around the front. Been around the back, been around the front, which I don't get either. I didn't hear that. It's clearly Little Baby. No, no, it's a little one bam for me. Listeners, what do you think The Edge is singing in Mofo? And if this has already been settled, if there's some obscure forum where someone has actually asked a member of the band... I, I, I'm worried that I'm not going to want to know the answer. Okay. Um, because if it's what you just read, I don't want it to be that. And no. I would rather live in a world uh, where I can happily believe it's little one bam than than live in a world that, where I know it's not that. Yeah, I think uh, RK Fire said it really well when they said, um, I would rather be wrong than live in the shadow of your son. I think that lyric applies here. Um, what I was going to say, though, is even if the band have revealed... This is Review 2. Well, you know, they're an influence. Uh, they're good mates, RK Fire and you too. So even if that has been revealed, or if someone has you know, figured it out and it's official now... What I would like to hear then is not a chorus of people saying you're an idiot, it's this and it's been settled. But what did you hear it as when you initially heard it? You know, when we didn't have the internet to check it all out. Yeah. Uh, so get in touch. Um, and you you can get in touch many ways these days. You can get in touch on Facebook at facebook.com review two to you or on soundcloud.com forward slash review two. If you're on iTunes, go to the review two podcast or if you would, if you're one of those rebel type guys, then email us at review2contact at gmail dot com. If God will send His angels, will everything be all right? Um, so again, this is another song on the album where you two are directly dealing with these issues of faith, religion. While it's not always been my favourite song on this album or even one of my favourite songs to return to, um, I think it is really good that you two are wrestling with these issues in a more interesting way than they've done on their very, very early material. And, you know, lyrics like, God has got his phone off the hook, I think this is to do with Bono confronting, and I don't. this doesn't need to be all about Bono's personal faith, you know, it's a song, it's given over to the world, and it's not tied directly to the author forever. But what I think it's useful is that Bono is asking the kind of questions of, the difficult questions of religion. So where is God in this world? If he's not completely dead or absent, 
is he just not listening it's an old philosophical you know kind of conundrum and this is bono's take on that i think it's a postmodern hymn okay the way i saw this song yeah there's another lyric in this which i used to you know like you used to confuse uh one of the lyrics was it on Zeropa? i confuse many many lyrics um, um, apart from one which is a uh, little baby i get that one right every time no that that one's little one bam no there was one on Zeropa that you um that you you asked me about it last time and i can't remember what it was struggling to think of it if ah well never mind but the, the lyric um for me is it's the blind leading the blind but i always thought it, the line was it's the blind leading the blonde it is leading the blonde is it really yeah it's a commentary on kind of commercialism and vapidity and you know um right. know, we're, we're... so i've always <laughs> thought i've heard it well I, when i'm sure it's blind leading the blind i'm pretty sure it's blonde well fair enough um but, but bleed, blind leading the blonde is a lot more interesting yeah and it would sync, sync up with you know the kind of the high fashion world and the kind of the pop world that they're inhabiting yeah i mean i mean i don't know if this is a pop track it's a really good track um but i don't know if it fits under that that pop guys only lyrically, I would say. And this is where I think uh, it jars with the, tr- the the previous track. I, I think Mofo going into "If God Will Send His Angels," although linked, I think with uh, with subject matter and the answering of, of questions and feeling lost. The God shaped hole. Yeah, uh, I I just I don't know if it fits together that well. It, it just it strikes me as odd. Mm, I think the the problem with "If God Will Send His Angels" is that it's a good track but not a great track. And you two have got an, a history, and this is kind of where their own quality sort of counts against them, in a sense. They've got a great history of beginning, you know, with some some interesting sounds, some some new sounds, some energy, and then around this point, the track three, the track four point, the point where you would get a one or a stay far away so close, then they hit you with a big song that is um not pacey or loud necessarily but it's got a big emotion to it it's got a big payoff and if god will send his, send his angels doesn't stand up in my opinion to one or stay far away and that's that's the problem it's okay but it's not great would you agree with that uh, i wouldn't put it in that category i think if if we're going for the one or the stay so uh, stay uh, far away so close of this record then that's probably staring at the sun mm. but if God will send his angels is it's a beautiful song it's upbeat it's it, it's actually quite positive in a way <laughs> in what way you seem to it, question yourself well it sounds it sounds positive I, I think when I listen to it I think it sounds positive I think that when they actually when when Edge comes in with that guitar for the first time it's quite groovy and yeah. it does sound very upbeat it's a nice there. little sing-along track it's a hymn that's the only mm. and that's the only way I can describe it it's it's a it's a hymn and it, uh, you can imagine people singing it in a church. Yeah, but as you said, it's kind of got that subversive postmodern take where it is a hymn about, you know, where is God considering the world looks like this? Yeah. You know, um, Edge said that the chorus doesn't quite connect. And this is one of the few occasions where I agree with the band, you know, kind of you know, downplaying how good pop is. I think the chorus doesn't connect. And also, you know, the, the moment towards the end where, they, where that word love comes in, and they have those, quite frankly, annoying aeroplane sounds, you know, zoom, zoom, that kind of thing. 
Um, I've heard them. I don't think they're they're annoying. I think those are hangovers uh, from Zeropa and mm-hmm. that sensory overload kind of idea, which I, I I don't think they're sick of at this point. I I, I think Popmart, for example, is just an extension of ZTV. Yeah, although I'm worried that we're getting too dangerously close to. to we're getting da- we are getting dangerously close. Right. Okay. So change the subject. We've been talking a little bit about the track listing on this, so this would be track one of side two of the first disc on the record. Right. So this obviously this obviously vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This obviously doesn't. um, If you're listening on the the CD, then that that doesn't it doesn't matter. But is is the track listing? Does it seem strange because they've tried to put you know little stories? So like side one, you've got Discotech, Do You Feel Loved, and Mofo. Uh, and then side two, you've got If Gobble Send His Angels, Staring at the Sun, and Last Night on Earth. Is there a a beginning, middle, and end kind of feel to, to those sides? See, I think there is a little... St- I, I think there is structure here. Um, I would say the first three fit together. And then for me, it's always been Staring at the Sun, Last Night on Earth, and Gone. They always fit together. So I'm struggling to find a place for If Gobble Send His Angels, apart from maybe not on this record. Well, I think it's a weird place, and I think it would be back further back um, around Velvet Dress. If we're going to believe that narrative about, you know, it's a party and then the hangover, which, again, I always... I think it's yeah. useful, but pretty limited as well. Right. Let's move on to Stirring at the Sun. Just before we do that... Okay, let's not. Okay, <laughs> just before we do that... We'll stay here for a bit. Um, I just wanted to say, I'm not completely against um, U2's use of aeroplane-style sounds... Because I think they were used... This is the most niche thing I've ever said. They are really used well in the Beautiful Day video. Would you agree, Tyler? Um, I see you picked up your phone. Is this conversation that riveting? No, I I agree. I, I, I love that image of the plane going over Bono for be- you know on Beautiful Day. But that's a U2 plane, isn't it, if I'm not mistaken? Which begs the question, who is on the plane? <laughs> Well, has someone stolen the plane if the, the band are on the runway? It's the, it's the evil U2 from Elevation. Cracked it. <laughs> and they're elevating in oh, a plane. It all makes sense. So what do you think of the song? I think Staring at the Sun is an old favourite of mine, which I've not really dusted off recently, in recent years. I think this is where, if we return to your introduction and you're talking about Britpop, this is, and obviously I'm not the first person to say it, this is the most Oasis-y sounding you see, two are. I read that while I was doing my research, and this doesn't sound anything like Oasis. I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge Oasis fan. I do like them, um, but I don't hear Oasis in this whatsoever. I think you can hear it a little bit in the guitar tone. I think because it's sort of mid-tempo and quite a big sound. I mean, it doesn't sound like all Oasis tracks, but I, I kind of get that. Maybe it's just an, an occasion where, because they're contemporaries, they're being prepared. And they did hang out. They went for a big night of drinking with them, well, with Noel and Liam. Oasis supported you 2 on the Potmart tour um, in 1997. Hmm. Um, I think they really made it... They're really big in 1996. I really can't say anything about it. It was about ninety four when they they brought the first album out. So they they, they were a pr- they were huge in the nineties. They were everywhere. But I've never seen the, the comparison as fur between Oasis and U two because they're so distinctly different uh in sensibility and personality in the music. Um 
I, I don't see the comparison though whatsoever, other than that you know they're both huge pop rock acts, and they both do make quite bombastic statements. You know, in the um, in the particularly in the choruses, you know. I'm not the only one staring at the sun. It, you could imagine Liam the singing rock, that. The rock bands, that the, the you know they have the archetypal, um, you know, loudmouth frontman. Yeah, but the, the and yeah, I agree because they're a, a, rock a band quiet, band. a quieter, arguably more talented guitarist. Interesting. Yeah. You know, and the rest of Oasis you don't know about. The rest of it, the joke is that you know even Larry's mum and dad don't know if he's Adam or Larry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what about Bonehead? I I I really like, but Bonehead actually comes across as a, a really nice guy in any of the interviews that, I, that I've seen with him. You're actually, to what, review Oasis. I actually watched a documentary about Oasis the other day, and all of them seem like normal people apart from Liam. And I I don't know, I don't I don't dislike Liam Gallagher. I just think he's I, I don't buy into his act. It's you don't really get the sense Liam doesn't show off his wonder ride as much, does he? But again, I'm talking about a band I don't know anything about. Yeah, that, it's true. Uh, it be, yeah. Um, maybe there are two bespectacled boys out there who do an Oasis podcast and we can do a, a, a U2 versus Oasis special. That'd be good. Get in touch with us if you're our weird sort of parallel evil Oasis versions with little beards like off Star Trek. Um, so back to the song. Feels like we've not really talked about it that much. No, um, we haven't. This song to me, again, could be to do with... Um, religion obviously there's a line god is good but will he listen that's a repeated theme throughout this album you know um if god will send his angels wake up dead man it's all about the fact of okay maybe there is a god but maybe he's just not listening now i think when bono's saying um i'm not the only one staring at the sun i think it's the point that you might see someone who is signed up to a particular ideology a faith a um a political commitment something like that and it's easy to point at them and say that they are blinded by that ideology and they're just happy to go along with something that makes life simpler. But I think the point of the song, and I've only sort of come to this conclusion recently, is that you can't, everyone's looking at the sun. You can't actually stop staring at the sun in that way. Everyone has a way to make sense of the world. Everyone has a really complex, but nevertheless, you know, effective way of seeing the world. But you can't ever get to that position where you're not staring at the sun. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Uh, it's a bit of a weird reading, but no, I know, I know what you're getting at. Everybody has um, a concept of faith or a concept of something that gives them hope. Uh, maybe that's a religion. Maybe it's not. You know, um, but everybody has uh, something to make sense of the world. I think, yeah, yeah, there's something that just makes the journey through life. You know, make sense. Hmm. A line that always sticks with me is. Um, I'm not going to be able to say that word. I couldn't say it. Intransigence is all around. Military still in town. Mm. Armoured plated suit and tie. Daddy just won't say goodbye. Yeah. Um, I could go on. But but for some reason, those... I don't listen to this song very often. I did when I was first getting into this album. But those lyrics really stick with me. The armoured plated suit and tie... The imagery of that is just hmm. well, it's astoundingly the... beautiful. Yeah, it does... and, and and also kind of violent at the same time. Well, it's about the violence which is done at an arm's length at a distance. So yeah. I think we're back to the kind of um, the bullet, the blue sky kind of territory, or some of the other. But this is subtle. 
Yeah. Whereas Bullet the Blue Sky is. What's Bullet the Blue Sky? Okay, track six on pop, The Last Night on Earth. You've got to give it away. And we do. We give away review two every week. It's absolutely free. Download it now from iTunes. I, I, I'd like to start off with a fond memory of this song with me and you. Okay, please share it. Um, when we discovered the singles, and uh, uh, for those of you that don't know, most of the, the, the songs on pop were either re-recorded, remixed, or completely redone. Yeah. Um normally through the singles or through B-sides. And there is a really, really good version of this song. I think it's the single version, or it might be a B-side. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. Um, and it, it's one where the you've got to give it away. Bono and the Edge are like, it's almost like a duel. Yeah. It's not, they're not singing in harmony. They're dueling with, you've got to give it away. And then the Edge will back. And I'm not going to do it because it will sound terrible. Also, there will be nothing in response from my side of the microphone. But one of my favourite memories of us two is sat in your old bedroom at your mum and dad's and we were doing that kind of <laughs> duelling, got to give it away thing. And, and we both ended up just laughing so much. Well, that's that why my parents ju- left the house that day. <laughs> so, yeah, happy, happy memory uh, connected to this song. I um, also have um, written down, you know, one of the first things that I wrote down on my notes was sparring. It reminds me of until the end of until the end of the world in that way um, that you do have. I love the songs where you have that almost matador uh, bull relationship with Edge and Bono. Yeah. Um, what do you think of the of the start of this song? Because to me, it really does sound like In Excess. I don't know enough about In Excess to make the comparison. So but they're really good. Uh, well, give me a playlist. Like the kind of, I think because of the time. Michael Hutchins died. Very close to this album coming out, actually. He died in November 1997. But Is that why Bono says Hutch at the start of Gone? Yeah. Elevation? Okay, yeah. Sure. Because In Excess, kind of, they, they did carry on afterwards, but because it wasn't you know the original core group, they didn't, apart from in Australia, where they were absolutely huge, they didn't have that time in like 2004, 2005, 2006 to go through that, you know, retro thing where everything that had been cool in the 80s was cool again. Okay. So I, I get, In Excess are kind of forgotten about apart from on 80s co- uh, compilation albums. But they're really, they're really good. You'd, you'd love them. We should do a podcast on In Excess. I'll introduce you to In Excess. Or if anyone listening knows, you know, because you two fans will be able to say what in excess stuff I should go to. Give me some suggestions. I'd be really interested to, you know, a few tracks, 10 tracks to get me started from, from their, uh, you know, from their collection. That'd be good. Uh, Paloma Faith covered one of uh, the most, uh, the more popular songs, uh, Tear Us Apart. Well, I like her, so. Um, and, and the Paloma Faith is a, is a good version. I, I know there are probably some in excess anoraks out there who are, um, Probably want to punch me in the face for saying that, but I I, I actually really respect Paloma Faith as an artist. And she's... <laughs> I think we'd never we'd never thought we were going to get to that sentence from the start of this uh, from this particular. We're talking about pop. That's pop music, pop culture. Everyone's talking about it. <laughs> so what's what's your review of this song? I love this song. It it's part of that three um, that trilogy in the middle of the album where you've got the biggest sounding guitars. It's got such a good riff. It was one of the ones that I wanted to learn, you know, right away as soon as I heard it. And um, 
enormous chorus. Um, and the reason why Edge actually does the, you know, has such a role in the chorus, according to the band, it's basically because Bono's voice was shot. It, it, it was, he was going through real difficulties and Edge is kind of filling the gaps there. Almost like they used to right on the, at the start, you know, with Boy. Yeah. So I, I, th- I love it. Well, this made it onto the album by hours. Hours. Mm. They, they were st- uh, struggling to finish this song. Bono only wrote um, uh, the You Gotta Give It Away at about four o'clock in the morning mm. before they were going to send it off to get pressed and released and, and everything. But what's annoying is the first versions of this song actually came out with the Zeropa sessions. So they spent about five years trying to do this song. Does that not sound a little bit overworked? I mean, it's a great song. The end, the end result was brilliant, but they still think this isn't finished. Well, this is the thing. I think the things that the band don't like about um, the album, you know, in terms of it, you know, not being quote unquote finished, I think that gives a real freshness to this album. I think, as I said at the start, this is a fresher sounding album than Zeropa in terms of its actual, you know, the recording quality. And that, if that is because they were delivering things late, then so be it. I, I think this uh, mix is good. I do very, very slightly prefer the version where Edge is a little bit more prominent. Of course I would. Um, but Edge himself actually said that this song for him doesn't rank up there with New Year's Day or Sunday Bloody Sunday. So that's why it's not included in the set list as much. I, I would take this, uh, you know, a modern version of this song over, you know, seeing Sun- Sunday Bloody Sunday yet again. This song for me is what you think of Until the End of the World is what I think about this song. You like it a lot? I, I Yeah, I absolutely love it. It's one of my most favourite tracks. Gone. We've not really talked much about where we were when we heard this album, but it was this track that really pulled me into to pop. I remember really distinctly Channel 4 were streaming... Um, the Elevation Boston show, the one which would eventually be put onto DVD and I would watch a hundred times. And back then, that's back to back. Yes. You, you didn't stop for... for I, missed a, I missed a lot of schoolwork. Yeah, for days. Um, we were concerned. Back in those early heady days where I didn't know all of the band's songs back to back. Or names. Na- quite, yeah, quite, quite, quite. Who's that guy at the back? Why have they got someone's uncle in them playing bass? You can leave Adam Clayton alone. He he wore he wore tatty jumpers on the Elevation tour and looks so much younger now. Which how many years? He wore since? really cool pants. They were enormous. Yeah, I love I love those pants. Too big, in my opinion. Um, so, I mean, I was in a state of innocence. How do you feel about Adam Clayton's pants? Get in touch. Mm, I'm right. So I was in a state of innocence rather than experience in relation to the band, and I remember hearing this song and it being so big. And I, I love the sound of the guitar, the really, you know, the kind of pitch shift, um, high guitar riff, the distortion, the fact that Bono and Edge again are sparring here, you know, Edge is filling in. It, it sounds so good when um, when they do that. And I mean, I even enjoyed Edge's little tantrum at the end of it. Now, let's get off talking about live. Mm. Um, I apologize for doing that. This is one of my favorite songs um, from the album. Everyone is on top form. And I love the fact that this song is, um, I mean, the main hook here, you know, I'm not coming down. A lot of the song is about a rock star personality and, you know, becoming so overblown 
it's a common theme in the 90s for you too and that has actually carried on being quite a big theme sometimes badly handled like stand-up comedy anyway um he's saying i'm not coming down but i think you do get both sides of this you get an admission of the problems with being a rock star and being so insulated and being so being told that you're great all the time you get that combined with a huge amount of confidence and a big sound and i think that's where i'm not coming down comes from why shouldn't they enjoy the fact that there is an exuberance in live music and live performance there Sally, you're reading a magazine? Is that because you're bored by this train of conversation? I'm doing my Simon Mayo bit. No, um, I have a problem with the band for not releasing this song, and I wanted to get the list of singles up. Okay, sure. To tell you what they released, okay? So, Discotech. No-brainer. Okay, obviously that's that's staying. Uh, That got to number one in the US, number ten in the UK. Um, Stirring at the Sun. Yeah, fair enough. Don't know if it needs to be... Love the track, but don't know if it needs to be a single. I think they thought it was going to be the big the big single off that album. That got to number three in the UK. Mm. Uh, then Are you sure Discotech didn't get to number one? It got to number one in the US, number ten in the in UK. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, Last Night on Earth, that, mm. that got to number ten in the UK also. I mean, I like it a lot, but maybe not the first choice for a single. 57 in the US. Well, that proves it, doesn't it? Um, I mean, I, I love that. I love that. Please, which we'll get to. Yeah, there's that, particular reasons why they released that. Yeah, um, that was number seven in the UK. Then you've got if God will send his angels. Nope. And the Mofo remixes. Uh, yes, I think they should have released that. And and you also have the Heart EP. That's a really good EP. Yeah. Although, yeah, again, I guess we're talking singles. But like, if you want to compete. Or not be, compete, but be seen to be part of Britpop. This is the song you should release. Um, Bono sings this song as if his heart is breaking. Um, but it really works. And this is a really good example of how good you two are. That big band sound. Maybe you don't need to be uh, playing around and trying to fit in with the, local, with the new niche thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't need to do that. But you put this song... In with what is considered to be, you know, pop culture and pop music at that time, and you are instantly relevant. It's that good. A this big guitar sound. This song should have been the calling card in 1997. They shouldn't. I'd, I'd look. I'd, this is my favorite album of all time. Wow. Of all time, I absolutely love this album. Sprung that one on us in the middle of the podcast. But you if you want public recognition which you two do that's what you two want to be relevant they want to be seen with the big boys of music at, at every period of their career and they want to fill out those seats in Potmart as well yeah you don't need six singles off this album release gone i i understand discotech um and i understand the last night on earth but really i, I if you put gone in there you're only three and that's a strong showing, and then let people buy the album and find the rest. Find the, the hidden gems and the hidden meanings and uh, how gritty this album can actually be. It mm. annoys me that they didn't release this single. Well, again, I think it's all that flapping about what they think is the best sound, you know, and re-recording and re-recording and going back. I mean, But they re-recorded pretty much everything on this, on yeah, this album. Yeah, and, and they did it um, straight away as well, which is the weirdest thing, that they would go back, you know, 
They were still doing Months it five later. years later. Five years later, they were still re-recording um, Staring at the Sun. Actually, I didn't say that about Staring at the Sun, but the, the album version sounds completely empty compared to the 2000 Best Of version. Hmm. It's, it's a lot more complete, and it sounds it's just got a fuller sound. But back to Gone, it was a, a huge mistake not to release that as a single. I, I can see, yeah, I can see what you're going. I can see where you're going though with that, and I would agree. Maybe Discotech, Mofo, I would have put out there just to just to show people how far. I'm happy from. with the, the remixes, but I don't see the Mofo remixes as, as a single really. No, it's not, is it? Um, so maybe a shortened version of Mofo and 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 yeah, Gone would would make sense to me. Definitely more than if God will send His angels, because as I said, it's not doing the job that they want it to do in fulfilling a stay or a one kind of role. Yeah. So from the heady heights of Gone, we have come down. It's come down to this, Miami. Tyler, what do you think about this song? Um, in terms of the album, this this works for me. I I think I think it's I don't think it's a terrible song. Difficult to know when you'd play it at any other time. Uh, but as part of the album, I, c- I can accept it. What I do get is a really strong sense of the gorillas and Blur, and, and particularly in the earlier parts that's of this song. It's not a very U2 track, and I think that's it's, it feels a bit awkward because you, you, you don't do things like this, but maybe, the, maybe they're experimenting. Um, Adam sounds incredible on, on the track. I, I think you're pretty opposed to this track. Yeah, listeners can't see my face contorting into grimaces. Yeah. But I, I think the uh, maybe it's um, maybe it's just not a complete idea. You can't even blame Eno for this because he's got nothing to do with this <laughs> this album. Um, so it's 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 it, it is a, it, it is bad in terms of of a U two song. I wish it was bad. Uh, it's not a. It's not a great advertisement for you two. There's, there's there's very little you can say to defend it. Um, but when I progressive sat down blues, with, sorry, that's what I'm going to say about progressive it. Progressive blues. This is their attempt at progressive blues. I don't know if they meant that to be the case, but that is my review. This is you two doing progressive blues. Okay, um, I can I can kind of understand that as a reading. I, when I when I. When I sat down with this, I, I went in saying, okay, I traditionally don't like this song. Now, I thought I'll try and say something interesting or positive about it. But I kept coming up with things like the fact that Bono talks about being sh- um, shot some shot someone in the foot. And that brought me to think about Goodfellas and, uh, and Christopher Moltisante shooting someone in the foot in The Sopranos. It didn't make me keep with the song, and the, it just seems like a little bit of a, a patchwork. And I like it when you two do collage. I like it when they put lots of different bits together in an interesting way. And Bono mentions a handy cam here, as if he's just going around listing things, you know, like a swimming pool, that kind of thing. But it doesn't really add up to anything. It it's got an annoying tone to it. I think what you were saying before about it doesn't sound like a U two song. There is pretty much nothing on Bono's voice here, which I'd like Bono to have reverb on his voice. U2 and reverb are like apple pie and ice cream, you know, or apple pie and custard. 
depending on you know where you're from. Sponge and custard. Yes, possibly. Um, so I I don't like how naked his his voice sounds here. It sounds a bit odd, even though I like that in, in other places on the album. I even and this is quite a big you know kind of admission. I even don't like Edge's guitar on this song. Sounds bad. <sighs> well, that's um, that's that's strong words coming from the Edge enthusiast. Indeed. Uh, and I, I am the Adam apologist, but I will not be apologising for Adam's bass line. If there's anything good that comes out of this song, it's Adam's bass line. Oh, we're going to the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> I wish. Mm. Um, I was going to say I don't, but that would imply that I don't like the song. So, But I do like the song. I didn't think you did like the song. It's been a bit of a weird one, this, because... Some of the same stuff could apply, um, you know, my criticism of Miami. I think Miami, in quite a packed album, an album doesn't really need to be as long as this. So Miami is straight on the cutting room floor for me. But the Playboy Mansion, I think, adds a lot to this, um, to the album. I think it's lush, it's shady, obviously quite sleazy. You've got Edge slide guitar really high in the mix, which again gives that... It's weird. Whenever Edge uses a slide guitar, it always seems to give so much character to um, the record, and it always seems like it's criticizing something. So, in the Refugee, it seems like it's criticizing a particularly, you know, kind of weird sort of gung ho American. It's really quality. interesting to me that you can jump from like this period of U two to to early period of U two because I it's a gift and a curse. They are. It's so starkly different for me that I can't even begin to compare and contrast. That it's hard for me to see the the uh, the band that did Boy as the same band that did Pop. It'd be great to go back in time in our Review 2 time machine and just catch the band at that time and just show them a picture of what they'd be dressed like in you know the late 90s. Uh, well, I, I, I think they all looked a lot better in the late 90s than in the early 80s. One of the great things I heard from Bono talking about his kind of, you know, boots big boots with jeans tucked in is if you've got small legs don't draw attention to them which is yeah fashion <laughs> advice from bono um i mean so a so, man who still wears cuban heels well in 2016 well yeah i mean i guess at least he's kind <laughs> of uh big enough at least to admit it on um on songs songs which are not that good spoiler alert for uh no line on the horizon <laughs> i'll be drunk for that episode i promise um I really, back to the song, I get the image of a dingy blues club. Um, yep. A very, a very Lynchian image in my head. Uh, that's David Lynch, uh, director for anybody who, who doesn't know. Um, but yeah, kind of the idea of a, a, a dingy old blues club with lonely, lonely old men drinking and smoking and it's a it's a nice song. It's not groundbreaking, but it is a nice song. But the imagery it creates in my head really contrasts that. Um, but again, that dark, dingy, sleazy underbelly of this album. Yeah, the, mm. yeah, sleazy is a is a good word to to describe it. Uh, I like it. It's not the best song in the world. I don't really know what else I can say about it. Well, I've got a couple of questions. A would you keep this on the album? Yes. Right, okay. As would I. I think it gives a really good 
a great character to the album. There is nothing I'd take off this album. Uh, Not even Miami. I would swap some versions for remixes, and I would add um, the cover of pop music. pop music. Yes. But a shortened version, because I think that's like six, seven minutes long, uh, and I would have that at the start, but that's way too long, uh, and it, that would feed directly into... Um, Mofo. Yeah, probably Mofo. Basically what they did live. Yeah. And it's worth a small aside to say, these are conversations we've been having for so long, and it's interesting that they seem to sync up exactly with um, Adam uh, Adam Scott and Scott Orkerman's discussion uh, well, of this album in particular. Um, listeners that have listened to the You Talking You Two to Me podcast with Adam Scott and Scott Orkerman will, may know that they suggested a different version of pop with some b-sides replacing some tracks mm. i put that song i put that album together and, I, you, and yeah, I listened you... i listened to it and i have to say while a lot of the versions were better that album is nowhere near compared to what pop is okay so Absolutely prefer uh, U2's version of pop and not you talking U2 to me's version. It's of mainly pop. it's mainly Scott Orkman's one. I think it's a really good playlist. I really agree with the pop music thing. I think it would be so interesting, but I think that's because, as Scott said, he's really into um, the more experimental side of of, of pop. Yeah. Um, but I also think just I know they did do the remixes, but some of them just didn't need remixing. Discotech does not need another version. I like the fact that we have it, but. You don't need to have it in there. No. The only one that's better, I'd say, is um, "Last Night on Earth." sounds sounds much better with with the Edge single version. There's there's a couple that sound really good. The the the, um, the single version of "Please" is like a lot better, uh, and, and I mean a lot better. Interesting. Sonically, uh, it just sounds so so much so warmer, fuller. It's just better in in pretty much every way. Um, I guess the difficulty, though, with with any of this is because you experience the album for the first time and it really solidifies in your mind with those mixes and those particular arrangements, they'll always to you seem like the original, whereas anything else is, you know, a not illegitimate, but, you know, like not quite right. But that's a kind of stupid way to think about it, considering. Um, so I'm sort of going against my own earlier point. It's kind of a stupid way to think about it because, of course, these things get rearranged and moved around. There's hundreds and hundreds of drafts of these existing somewhere on some sort of dat tape somewhere, you know, or, yeah. or whatever, on a computer. So it's not good to be... Um, for every one precious. song they release, no matter how they release it, for every one song, there must be 10, 20 songs that they don't. Hmm. And it'd be really, it'd be interesting to see some of those. Well, I'm sure they'll open up the archives eventually, which will be so interesting. <laughs> but they will range from Trash Trampoline and the Party Girl, possibly the worst U2 song on record, um, to... I disagree with that, by the way. We're gone. Uh, to Ultraviolet. They'll, 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 ra- they'll, they'll be a range of that. So exciting. We, <laughs> we bash the microphone. Yeah, we destroy the studio. Um, the other question I wanted to ask is... A lot of people have a problem with this song because it's so particularly rooted in this time frame. You know, McDonald's, Michael Jackson, the OJ trial, all that other kind of stuff are referenced. Well, this is the pop mart description, isn't it? This is it's all that pop culture stuff, and basically they 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 looked at the lyrics for this song and put put the lyrics for this song on a stage um, mm. with a, a giant lemon. A giant cocktail stick with an olive on it that rotates. And the McDonald's arch and everything. Uh, yeah, half a 
castrated McDonald's arch um, and, and the world's largest TV screen at that point. So, I mean, my question about that then is, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, my question is, is this a positive or should this be seen as a positive, these kind of references? It's a bit circular because if you say these references are kind of, you know, they get outdated very quickly and they're less eternal. I mean, a song like an album like The Joshua Tree is rooted in a sort of a sense of eternal, you know, kind of songs that will last forever. You know, whereas this is so disposable. But is well, that the it, point? It's of it's very much of the time, um, but I don't think that makes it a, a, a worse track. Some some songs have to be like that, particularly on an album called Pop. Yeah, yeah. Some some songs have to be like that. Fair dues. Johnny, what what are you wearing? Oh, it's just a little something I threw on. It it looks like a velvet dress. No, it's just a t-shirt and jeans, to be honest. <laughs> well, a velvet dress would be quite hot, I believe. <laughs> uh, yeah, it probably would be. Clammy. <laughs> Which doesn't really <laughs> suit with the kind of the sensuality and the beauty of this song. We've kind of introduced it on a little bit of an odd note. Uh, Do you like this song? Uh, yeah, yeah, um, it's a beautiful song. Um, why is this album not called Soul? Soul. Yeah, it should be called Pop and Soul. Pop and Soul. <laughs> yeah, I disagree with that. It sounds like a bad shoe shop. Um, this is uh one of the songs that I really used uh, for inspiration when we first started recording music when we were in our teens. Um, I'm smiling with recognition and shame. <laughs> like, because we wrote that song Midnight. Do you remember Midnight? Who could forget? Do you actually remember Midnight? Of course I remember Midnight. It's, it was a good song. I'd say the production was really good. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't have anything to do with that bit. I just sang on the That's track. That's the joke. Um, right, because it has a similar quality to If You Wear a Velvet Dress. I guess, like... it. If you if you were velvet dress is a really sort of shimmering song and it's very beautiful, which might be what we were going for. Yeah, if not achieving. Um, so should we include um, no midnight as no. an Easter egg at the end of the track? No, I think people would find that very funny. No, <laughs> we recorded that ten years ago. Hence why no. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful track. Um, works really well in a live setting. I was surprised it's not played a little bit more, you know, in the, the slow bit of a U2 set. Interesting, yeah. Um, I think it, I'd I think, love to see this live. Yeah, I think it works. I think I don't think it's aged. Like we were talking about Playboy Mansion, how that's very much a product of the 90s. Yeah. If You Were That Velvet Dress is just a really good song. Well, it's that, it, yeah, it does have more kind of, not eternal, but, you know, long-lasting themes. It does seem like... Just a love song. Well, I think, yeah, but but I think, they, for me, it doesn't really sound like it's a direct, you know, kind of... I think it's where Bono's taking on a persona, as he does sometimes, and he's torn between two people, um, represented, broadly speaking, by the sun and the moon here, you know, and he's sort of pulled between different people. So it seems like he should go with the person who, um, you know, offers him daylight, and there's that amazing kind of moment when um when he says sunlight and then the song just seems to open up beautifully the the production really works there the arrangement is so good i think harry yeah. b's actually um 
to thank for that. I think he, I think he worked on that. You know, really. It's quite a standalone. There's not many U2 songs that sound like um, if you were that velvet dress. Not at all. I mean, again, we're sort of more in a territory where they are consciously being sensual. You know, it's it's not something they do very often, but it works here. Um, and I think going back to Miami, um, the song. This um, this is where Bono's voice is incredibly intimate. It feels like he's you know speaking directly into your ear, if you will. And um, it works for this song. I wonder why I hate it so much in Miami. Maybe because the rest of the song is so bad. Anyway, mm-hmm. I I'll stop. I'll stop talking about Miami. No, I, I absolutely great song. Um, Not much more to say. No, I, 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 I as we have discussed in the, in the past, it's a lot harder to talk about the songs that you really like and really enjoy. And this is just a really classic track. Probably really underplayed by the band, but great track. Please. Now, you two sometimes um, finish their albums on a weaker note than they start. And I think it's great that we have a song like Please, a penultimate track, to really, you know, solidify this as an excellent album, to keep that quality up all the way through. I like Velvet Dress, I like the Playboy Mansion, but they're not as powerful as this song. And obviously... There is the, you know, the kind of the political context, the troubles, the breakdown of uh, ceasefire in Northern Ireland. But also, this song always spoke to me listening to it when I was young and had no idea about any of those things. Bono describes it as a mad prayer. And I was I was always interested in the kind of imagery that's uh, that's brought up here. So they talk about the Sermon on the Mount from the boot of your car. Um, when that line is sung, I used to think, that's to do with someone who is pontificating and you know trying to put the world to rights when really they're such a small person in such a small location and they don't have any clue about you know the depth of the issues that they're talking about but then obviously when you when you hear about the background to the song and when you when you go back into that history you know sermon on the mounts and car boots become a lot more suggestive and complex imagery you know when the violent context is added to that what do you think about this song, Tyler? Um, when I was about 16, this was absolutely my favourite U2 song. Um, it's fallen down the ranks quite a lot. Um, I find it quite hard to identify with this song now. and I, I find myself fighting uh, really good memories you know, of really enjoying it, and it doesn't quite have the same uh, resonance with me anymore. So what was it about those early listens that really got you into it? What spoke to you about the I song? I don't know if it was Bono's passion, particularly um, on the uh, Pop Heart EP. Yeah. Um, this is... Uh, it's obviously very important, a very important subject to the band. And just the way Bono sang it with such um, passion and such uh, confidence. It was... It, and it, it was, but you know... It's called Please, and they were, they were pleading, and they, 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 they'd grown up with the troubles in, in Ireland, which we're not going to go into. But they, you can tell when when something means something a little bit more. It's not just a song, you know, it's... Uh, and particularly amid all of Pop Mart's um, yeah, obsession it's not, with imagery. It's not protest either. It's it's not, you know, walking and going, oh, you stop that, what are you doing? Put that down, you know, stop it, behave yourselves. Yeah. It's not that, it's... 
it's um it's a pleading for peace basically yeah, he's isn't it op- he's just opening up he's just saying can we just stop this like let's let's talk there's there's other ways to do it so i think that that left a really big impression on me uh when i was when i was 16 but now i i i struggle with this song and i and i know it's a really really good song but i i don't know there's just um Maybe, maybe I'm a little bit more cynical now. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah. Um. And and maybe I I think that it's a bit naive. Well, I guess it just depends on the context you're listening to it to, and sorry, listening to it in, and how you're applying it. Really, um, it's the, the most serious song on the album. Definitely, yeah. And you, this is a million miles away from the Playboy Mansion. Um, I mean, you know, geographically speaking as well. So. The quote, I mean, that I've got here for this, apart from about this being a, a mad prayer, is Bono was trying to get across um, get a, get across to a type of um, middle class liberal cynicism, people who hijack uh, political movements for their own kind of um, ideologies, but who are not actually directly involved in them. So he wanted to um, address people who think, and this is a quote, people who think ideas are more valuable than people. So it's interesting that this is a song that is purely about pleading for peace. But I think, again, that applies to lots of different contexts. When I was listening to this earlier on, I pictured this more in relation to domestic kind of, you know, relationships, relationships between people that have gone badly. And there actually needs to be some sort of dialogue or just communication before things become worse and worse and worse, you know, and kind of spiral into that. And that sense of dislocation is interesting because the bass starts in a weird key at the start you know when it kind of ambles in but how good is adam's bass playing on this song i mean to just to jump straight into into adam's bass playing is always particularly good yeah okay well it can't be always particularly good can it yeah he's he's the best bass player in the world well is that even a thing like there's normally polls of of things there there are yeah like you know less well attended than best best guitarists in the world best singers in the world best albums but you you never really hear best bassists they they do have it in you know kind of in magazines and stuff but yeah it's less of a thing because that's frankly there's more people who play guitar than bass so please it is an excellent song i think it builds really well it just builds epically well um I wish I kind of wish this was on a different album, um, on a tour that was maybe a little bit more serious or more it, there was more focus on the music than, uh, say, a robotic lemon. Um, I I I because I, I, I just think if they'd played if they'd have played this on, say, Vertigo tour because that was quite politically minded. Yeah, I think it it would have resonated, um, a lot more than it did on Potmark. Because Potmart wasn't a political statement. Potmart was Potmart. Well, I don't know. I mean, Bullet the Blue Sky, your old favourite, has a lot of kind of you know politics in it, and I think, I think that it actually works quite well because in Potmart you get both sides of the coin. You get these the the really interesting kind of concern with surface, with artificiality, with pop, you know, in its blandest and kind of you know most. Um, commercial you know kind of manifestations but then when everything strips strips away and you just have bono with a spotlight for please and larry bringing back in the sunday bloody sunday drum beat i've just re- realized we're talking about pop again when we said we would try not to do that but it's, it's very hard to not talk about it 
Yeah, but I think it works basically. I think that contrast yeah. works. Tyler, what are your thoughts on Wake Up Dead Man? Uh, final track, and it suits to, it suits being the final track. I feel like it's it's quite a bizarre image. This, but bear, bear with me. Okay. Um, when I hear this song, particularly in relation to the album, so not as a standalone track, in relation to the album, it's like this song is acting as a Hoover, where it's 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 hoovering up all that uh, in, intermittent sound, um, those ideas of sensory overload that have been hanging over since uh, Acton Baby and, Z- and Zuropa, and it's stripping all that gimmickry away and leaving a, a pure song and a pure band, and it's kind of like a rebirth, you know, that wake up a, a dead man. It's kind of the, the resurrection of, of you two, and where they go after pop mm. is it's um, another reinvention and I think this song is just bringing all that to a close stripping them of all that and letting them embrace the new material in a very a very fresh way so maybe yeah. that's quite an uh, abstract reading of this song uh, but that's what I always think when when I'm getting to the end of pop. I think that really actually makes sense. Obviously, Hoover is slightly odd as a metaphor, but I think yeah. it works. And that really does speak to... A vacuum for our uh, <laughs> transatlantic listeners. Yeah. Um, I think that really does speak to the kind of things I was thinking about. At the start of this song, you have the sound of a crowd, and it only exists for a moment or two, and it's almost like they shut the door, literally, on that crowd sound. And there's a stepping away from the crowd and the stepping away of the live audience and presumably the noise of the world. And yet it is stripped down. There is, at the start here, pretty much just an acoustic guitar. And it's actually a very traditional song in terms of um, its structure. It's simple. The fact that it goes do, 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 you know, and has that kind of, you know, uh, dovetailing of sections with that makes me feel, you know, puts me in mind of kind of soulful, bluesy type things rather than, you know, the mofos and the gons of this, of this well, record. If you can liken uh, songs, uh, individual songs to films, this is an epic film. It's kind of, it's, there's a lot of, you know, those ideas of God and um, man v. God and Paradise Lost and all, the, all, all I get that huge sense. From this so, song or from the album in general? From this song. Okay. So, sure. um, but when I'm listening to the song, it makes me think that the whole album's been like this. But it hasn't. The, the, the song is, is so much bigger than it than itself. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Although I would say that um, I think they have been dealing with those the themes of this song. Yeah, the yes, yeah. they have. But like, not as on the nose as yeah. this song. Well, this but is... this song makes me feel like... Um, the rest have been doing that. Yeah, whereas actually there have been diversions like Playboy Mansion and things like that. And more subtle, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I love, again, the fact that all the way through this album, there's such an interesting kind of, you know, wrestling with issues of faith. And it's done in a really fresh and interesting way. I mean, the history behind this song is... Um, actually, Edge came up with the first verse in the chorus... And he describes that time as a really low spiritual point for him. And 
I think it's fascinating because if you and then Bono takes over everything else apparently according to Edge. So it's interesting to isolate that very first um, verse and chorus. You know, where you two swear. You know, um, and that's that's actually quite strange. I don't. They think don't use profanity normally at all. I, I think this is uh, I, one of the very few. If can you think of another occasion on record? I cannot think of another. Off the top of my head, think of another occasion. No, and I, I don't think if it didn't happen in the nineties, mm. I don't know when it would happen. And I remember, I remember listening to this song in the car with my dad, who at that point wasn't really into profanity in music at all. You know, I mean, he's not gone into gangster rap recently, but I mean, you know, he wasn't, and I, he wasn't into you know swearing on records for no reason. But I was confident that I could play this song in the car without it being a problem because of the weight of it and the seriousness of it, you know, so it actually makes sense. Yeah. You said that sometimes you two finish albums in in a weak way, but I absolutely think this is one one of the exceptions where they really get it right. Um mm. it's a it's a great song to finish on. And one of the tracks that I I do I like to listen to this album as a whole, but there are one or two tracks that I like to listen to just as tracks and this is one of them i go I, I go back to this track quite a lot and i'd say i go back to this track when when you do get a sense of weariness and exhaustion the lyrics will just pop up in my head every now and then yeah they're really affecting and they do stay with you um i mean it's such an interesting album in terms of you can go to discotheque if you want something to dance to and i do yeah, yeah. um you can go to mofo if you want to listen to something heavy and you know the closest thing you two get to producing or, a or if you want if you just want to sing down. little wham bam go to mofo if you want to sing it incorrectly you can sing that yeah i mean rather than it being correct which is um little baby god i've heard this so many of these i'm actually getting them mistaken now i thought yours was a little red man no that's Vinny's <laughs> one for sake <laughs> Okay, so that was U2's ninth album, Pop. And it's now time for everybody's favourite feature. Mmcha, mmcha, sweetest thing, mmcha, mmcha, sweetest thing. You really went for that. Um, so what's your uh, sweetest thing on this, on this album, Tyler? Bearing in mind that it's your favourite album. It is my favourite album. Uh, but as always, I am doing my sweetest thing from the listen for this podcast. Yeah, so at the moment. Yeah, so at, uh, from this listen, my sweetest thing is Do You Feel Loved? Ooh, interesting. My sweetest thing for this, and I had to, you know, really think, is it one of one of three? My favourite one is Mofo. It just, I just loved listening to it. That is one of my most favourite tracks of all time. And I feel like it's the heart of the album in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Trying to get me to pick a, a favorite track on my favorite album, like I, I would, I quite happily give it to all of them. I, I, I really would. I'd, I'd love this album. I love going back to it. I love that it's unfinished. I love that it's imperfect. Um, as you, as all your favorite things in the world should be. Hmm. Yeah, it's the little flaws that make us human. I've always thought that, Tyler. Yeah. Um. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, David Bowie. Dirty day. Fair enough. Um, so, it's probably no secret what my dirty day for this album is. It's Miami. I would 
be very happy if this was cut and put on the left on the cutting room floor, basically. The album would only be stronger. I, I really want to disagree with you, um, but as we are just picking one track that we that we would bin off, uh, then it uh, yeah Miami for ding, me ding, as well. Ding. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the question is: Is pop nearly great? Is there something missing? Is this a flipping album? Tyler, what do you think? It's my favourite album of all time. Of course it's an album. Of course it is, yeah. So just to remind anyone, the kind of criteria for this question is, is this, you know, just a collection of songs that have been produced by a band, you know, that don't really have any cohesion? Or is this an album that really hangs together? And it's so obvious that it is. Yeah, let me just qualify my answer as well. There are better versions of these songs. Um, Most of them have been re-recorded, remixed, completely reinvented. There are better versions out there, but this as an album, as a piece of art, is is really, really good, and it's it's really underrated. It's probably the most underrated U2 album out there. Maybe so. It'd be interesting. I mean, the thing is, you can never accurately gauge these, really. I mean, apart from something like Joshua Tree that has almost universal... From the albums that have been around for a decent amount of time. Yeah. I think I think that's fair to say, yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely underrated by a lot of people, and by a lot of people who don't really understand it or have only seen you two on The Simpsons, you know. I, I you know, I, if if you do like this album, or maybe you don't like this album, uh, try and find the B sides. It's probably very easy to find them on on YouTube and Spotify. Try and find the B sides. Try and find the alternate versions, because they on this album things aren't finished, but they did revisit them and try and bring a sense of. Uh, of a finish to mm. to those songs and some of them are really really good good tracks good standalone tracks too yeah it'd be interesting to know um if you'd heard those versions first which ones you'd actually prefer i mean i think there's a lot to be said for the uh, re-recorded version of gone which takes a lot of the stuff that went well live and puts it back into the track but then again i love the original i think as an album even if it is quote unquote unfinished it's got so much cohesion. There's so many themes that are, are, are talked about and developed and really got into on this album, particularly around God, particularly around family, um, motherhood. The sun is always present throughout. I mean, I know that sounds a little bit silly, but if you can spot all the different points in this album where you know the sun reappears, it's such a big, fresh sound. And a lot of people think that you two got to the end of a robe or something and were flogging a dead horse by this point. Absolutely not. With Acton Baby, they leapt into this new style. With Zeropa, they rolled around in it and really did some experimentation. And to me, pop is this sort of triumphant return of all the songs, really, you know, of them being happy with the way this sounds. And it's so bright and exciting and interesting. And yeah, it's of course, it's a flipping album. Uh, I completely agree. Um, and I'd just, I'd just like to finish on uh, this. I was trying to just sum up my thoughts so this is probably the most um stereotypical review we've we've ever done on a on a review two podcast uh so here it goes the songs on this album the melodies the riffs the messages the subject matter reveal the blackening heart of an aging rock band the desperation of being considered relevant the self-doubt of being able to compete with younger hungrier acts like oasis blur pulp suede even acts like the spice girls 
um, the fear of thinking that this might be the end of the ride for you two. What resulted was you two further exhausting a self-deprecating image, but this time coupling it with stylistic features of Warhol and Liechtenstein. You two became so loud trying to carve the position and to be seen as part of Britpop and Cool Britannia that the songs became an afterthought to the giant lemons, olives, castrated McDonald's signs. You two were seen but not heard. So while anyone who stumbles across pop with little knowledge of pop mart will find an album that features some of you two's most personal lyrics, some of the most diverse melodies and riffs and some of the most artistic approaches anyone who lived through it will struggle to remember anything but the excellent wrapping paper that contained an unwanted gift whether you two meant to or not they create created a during album well said yeah so that is it's and it's that's really hard for me to you know try and sum up my favorite album in that way but I think that is what we're dealing with, um, with pop. So that was pop. Next time, we'll be back with a very, very different era of U2. And all that's left to say now is thanks for listening. Please do comment, like, rate, review. And Tyler, I think you've got a couple of the details uh, on how people can do that. Uh, absolutely. If you'd like to follow us on Facebook, then go to facebook.com forward slash review to to you. If you'd like to follow us on SoundCloud, then go to soundcloud.com forward slash review to. If you're the iTunes kind of guy, go to the review to podcast on iTunes. Or for those rebel type guys, review to contact at gmail.com. That's it for now and for the 90s. Uh, the next time we see you, it will be the new millennium. Exciting. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder what's going to happen. All computers will be destroyed by the millennium bug. Oh, God. For this week, I'm Tyler. I'm Johnny. We hope you'll join us next week when we review to all that you can't leave behind. See you then. See you next week. Hi there, thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch, please contact us on facebook.com forward slash review to to you or on soundcloud.com forward slash review to or search for the review to podcast on iTunes. You can also email us at review to contact at gmail.com. Please like, comment and subscribe. Thank you. <laughs>